0: Hi guys, it's me, Cedric, and I'm here with you weekly dose of Mindset Win. We just released our analysis episode. So join me as we know dig a little bit deeper into Daniel Durr's world in this uncut episode. So, York and I spoke about Daniel just two days ago, and in this episode, we're going to give you the opportunity to not only better understand how his mind works, but also reflect on our findings and see how these are present within Daniel. Daniel is a Venezuelan BMX phenomenon. You might recognize him from viral stunts, like biking on the back of a moving truck in the middle of Lima's crazy traffic. But if not, then you're in for a real ride. Daniel's been busy preparing for the Pan American Games in November, a really significant event, almost as big as the Olympics. And Daniel is one of the favorites to win. As a mixer, he might be the last person you'd expect to have two feet firmly on the ground, but it's safe to say that Daniel is completely down to earth. He's no stranger when it comes to speaking out. And in this version of the podcast, we delve right into what mentorship and building community has meant to him over the years. If you haven't heard his main episode, then you should take a listen and hear what York and I learned from him in our chat. But for now, here is Daniel himself. Hi,
1: my name is Daniel Dares. I'm from Caracas, Venezuela, and I'm a professional BMX rider. BMX is about doing acrobatics on a small bicycle. I enjoy BMX because of the freedom of it. So you obviously have a sports aspect, but I think it was the opportunity to express yourselves. Especially in that era, I started riding in 1998, so BMX was a lot different then. You know, we weren't part of any big events except for X Games, and it was all about your personality, right? The bike is certain colors, and the way you dress, and your helmets, the stickers, everything. So there was like an artistic aspect, and at the same time, you know, I tried karate, I tried soccer, baseball, basketball, all the mainstream sports. And I just hated the, the, the part that I had a team. I hated that. I'm like, okay, if, if I do well because of someone else, or if I do bad because of someone else, I, it's not me. I want to be responsible for my own actions, right? So at first, I just wanted to ride a bike. I wasn't really thinking of like the acrobatics and stuff. And then a friend of mine started riding and jumping speed bumps and stuff. And we met a guy that did flatland, which is the balance tricks on flat ground. And he taught us a couple of tricks and... He was like, hey, if you guys want to ride street, there's these guys that live, you know, a few blocks from here. So you guys should maybe ride with them. And that's how I started riding around Caracas, jumping stairs, handrails. You know, what, what is BMX Street, which at that point it was a bit of vandalism. But, you know, we were just trying to ride our bikes. The day I went to the skate park is the day I said, hey, mom, this is what I want to do. And I didn't think of it as like, oh, I want to be the best at this. I just want to ride my bike at the ramps. She was like, okay, as long as you go to school and study and all the all the stuff. Uh, and guess what? I did not want to go to school. didn't want to study. And so it was a bit of a battle for a while. My dad was like, hey, you need to have a, a steady income. And, you know, like now when I see in retrospective, I understand, yes, you're concerned, especially coming from South America. At the end, I was like, hey, give me this last year. If I make it top 10, I'll dedicate myself to BMX riding because I know I'll be able to make a living. If I get 11th or, you know, beyond, I, I'll stop riding, I'll retire, and I'll come work with you. This is 2006, I was 21, and that year and I, I end up winning the Dew Tour, I get third at XMs, I win the World Championship, and I remember he was at the ceremony of Dew Tour, which was the biggest event at the time, and I, I grabbed the Dew Cup, and we look at each other, and we never said it, but we knew what that meant. I was going to dedicate myself to BMX riding, and I think... A weight lift off his shoulders. He was like, okay, he can make a living off bike riding. It's dangerous, but he's doing what he loves. And from then on, the tune changed. Like, you know, it's not like he wasn't supportive before, but he just wanted to make sure that I had a way to support myself for the future. I like the freedom of it, and that's why I started doing it. But I started competing since the first year of riding. I entered my first competition and I got second, and I was so upset that I got beat by this other guy. (laughs) And, you know, I always competed. So at that time in Venezuela, it wasn't many of us, might have been 10 in the entire country. And the level of riding was really low. So it was kind of easy to catch up to the top guys, which, again, only 10 people rode bikes. And then I moved to Argentina when I was 16. And that was tough because I, I didn't want it to move there. At that point in time, I already got a sponsor in Venezuela and I was so psyched. Yes, I'm getting free parts and clothing and stuff, and I don't want to live to Argentina. I'll have to start from zero. Uh, but I was 16 years old. I couldn't say no to my family. They, they got job offers there, so I ended up moving. And yeah, start over, but I kept competing. So I didn't realize what was happening until I was already like in the mix. I started competing in Argentina, and at first I did terrible because there were a lot better riders there. But he helped me, you know, I surrounded myself with better people and I learned tricks and don't know if I learned to compete that maybe came later on. You can be the best rider in the world, but if you don't know how to compete, it doesn't matter. It does not matter how good you are because competition is very intricate and you got to study it a lot. It's seriously a career. For example, like Olympic games, you participate, you get like a certification. It's O-L-Y. It's like a PhD because it takes a lot of time and a lot of study to be able to make it to the games when you watch us compete you only watch the one minute perfect dream run but you don't see everything that happens right b- before that i think curiosity is number one you can't be like oh i know it all oh i won this event usually the first year of winning events is the easiest year it's really easy to win because you just put all your chips on the table you go as hard as you can and eventually things will happen but After you win the first year, it's like, okay, now you have expectation. You have sponsors. You have people watching. You have people screaming your name. You have the kid asking for an autograph right before you drop in. I think my character also comes in play. Being from Venezuela, our culture, it was very confrontational because of crime, kidnappings, you know, theft, everything. So every time you open the door of your house and you walked out, you're like, okay, someone's going to try to rob me. I better move quick. I got a bit serious. Like, you would not smile in the street. So I think that helped me for later in life when I go and compete. Competition is, is beautiful, but it's war. You know, you are trying to win an event where other people are trying to win. I don't want to be known as the guy that won the one year and disappeared because that happened to a guy that I admired before, and then he was crushed by everyone. It was hard for me because I was on the ascent. There's a lot of things around it, you know? Competing is not just going to do the tail whips. I had to learn how to speak, and it's something so strange, because it's something you do your entire life, but because you speak doesn't mean you communicate right. So my native language is Spanish, so I had to learn English. I would be winning the event, but I wouldn't be getting the main interview. And... The one time the producer tells me, "Hey Daniel, I would like to give you the main interview, but you just don't know how to communicate." I'm like, "What you mean? I speak English too." And she's like, "Yeah, I know. I understand you, but the public on camera, like it, you, you won't be able to be understood." So that was like, "Okay, I need to learn this. It's something no one teaches you." So I start watching videos. I start watching my friends study, work on that next event. Okay, Daniel, uh, we'll do the interview. Uh, how did it feel today? Uh, Hey, it felt amazing. I was so psyched. The run went awesome. Like, you know, my English just transformed. That was in like July 2007, I think. And then by January 2008, I had a filming crew traveling the world with me. You know, I was trying to interact with more people. I always wanted to just hang out with my BMX friends, but there's a world outside of all of this. And I remember just trying to understand that. I pick up a, a... a book on how to talk to women. How do you do it? What's the secret? There has to be a secret to this. And in all of that, you know, there's like a chapter that talks about how eyes communicate with the other person. They say, you know, the eyes are the windows of the soul. And it is true. So when I was going down that road, there was this thing that said, oh, and you learned this in neurolinguistic programming. I'm like, what is that? So I put this book to the side and I picked up neurolinguistic programming, which it teaches you that your brain has programs that it executes, and you have a result. That's, that's it. So in all of that, I was thinking, oh, I could use this for a competition. Like, I'm competing versus the best guys in the world. I know I'm pretty good at competing, but I need to find a way to always have the edge. So this right here is what gave me the tools to be able to execute all those programs. Like, okay, I need to be able to understand my runs better. I need to understand the other competitor. I need to know how he feels that day. Okay, this guy is going to be an issue today. Okay, let me work around and not like to psych them out, but, you know, because in competition, someone will throw a banana peel here and there and, you know, I would do the same. And also I would identify when people will come at me with trying to throw that banana peel. I call it a banana peel, but it is a distraction. Just for a moment, you lose focus. So it got to the point that everyone in the circuit, they would say, Daniel is probably the strongest mentally in the entire field. So that's basically what got me into being the person that I am today. So once I picked up neurolinguistic programming, I would read it in my room every day before going to write or after writing. You know, it has many lessons and a lot of exercises of write down certain things. So for example, I was the first guy to front flip the spine. The spine is the ramp that is super simple, but one of the most scary. And I committed to be the first person to do it. But at some point in all of this, I felt like I lost it or I I started getting really scared of this trick and I didn't do it for like a year. It was a bit of battle. So once I picked up neurolinguistic programming, there was an exercise of teach yourself how to do something, something that you already do. And I was like, I need to reteach myself front flips on the spine. So let me write this down. And I remember writing like, okay, you approach the ramp and, okay, you're going to pump. Okay, third step, start leaning forward. Fourth step, tap your brakes. Next step, just, okay, tuck in. Next step, try to be as tight as you can with the bike. Next step: look at the landing, which is that's the scary part because you, I, I would come in sideways. And when I wrote that to this day, is a trick that does not scare me anymore. The other day I was in Germany and, I, and they were like, "Okay, do a last trick," and I was like, "Dude, what do I do?" I'm like, "Okay, front flip on the spine," and did even registered that, dude, I used to be terrified of this trick. I just went and did it, and the announcer was like, yo, Daniel, remember when you first did it back in, like, 2005? Like, it's awesome to see it again. You're talking 18 years ago I did this trick. It helped me to explain to myself how to do it because I think I was afraid that I would miss one of the steps, and I needed that. Like, what I do is coordination. It's constantly, you know, teaching the body to memorize all of this. And that's one of the exercises that helped me. I remember one of my mentors, Dave Mira, he would always tell me, mental strength, man, that's the key, mental strength. I do feel that I am a lot more prepared than a lot of people in certain things. You know, like, by the time I went to the Olympics in 2021, like, I felt like I was more than ready to do the event, the biggest event in the world. I went there to win a medal. And and then the aftermath of that, like, you know, in Venezuela, I, I really blew up. It's kind of crazy to walk in the streets there. And that you have to learn how to deal with it. Because at first, like, I can't open the door of my house without people screaming my name. And I had to learn again. I went back like, okay, how do you do it? When you feel uncomfortable, what should you do? You know, we all feel uncomfortable all the time, but how do you calm yourself down? And all these things I learned, like, okay, there is a method. One of the main things that I feel like I try to talk about now is be prepared for the unexpected. We have a lot of unexpected moments, an immense amount, especially in competition. And this applies probably to your day-to-day life. Like right now you go out driving and you get into a car accident. Okay, what do you do? You know, I always tell everyone around me, like regardless of what we're doing is, number one, you do not panic. Panic will not help. Yes, you will feel emotional. You're going to be either super stressed or angry or sad or something, but you do not panic. It's okay to feel a certain way. Look at the moment. Analyze it. Okay, what would be the first step to fix this? And every situation is different. In my backpack, I have every tool that you can imagine in every bike part, and I still show up to the event, and something breaks in a way that I have no way to fix it. And I'm talking like you only have minutes because you are about to go into your run, and it's like, okay, this is what happened. How do I usually fix this? What is the closest knowledge that I know about this? Sometimes, obviously, you got to use your imagination. I don't think it's as robotic as I make it sound, but... If you put steps to every time you have an unexpected situation, you will be able to come out of it with more success. How many athletes have been preparing for years? They go to the event, world championships, Olympics, whatever, and they disintegrate right before because, I don't know, they need a water and someone didn't bring the water. You got to, to an extent, prepare as much as you can for the unexpected. But once they happen and you really don't have an idea on how to do it, go into steps. What's the first thing I do in this situation? Okay, what is number two? And I guess to me, that's been the secret to be able to be around for, for so long. I don't have superstitions, but I do understand where superstitions come from. It's a way to prepare the brain. And we are like cats. We don't like change. We don't like when things are different and if something works. Every single time that I do this, this is the way. And this is something strange that it happens to everyone. So when you wake up out of bed, I guarantee that you wake up in a certain way and then when you're about to dress up, you put your left sock first and then your right sock and then you put the left leg into the shorts and then the right leg. The same with the shirt, you put either left arm or right arm and then the head and so on and so on, right? And those are just cues to the brain that tells the brain, hey, uh, be ready for what we're doing today. So when you are competing, usually you have probably stronger cues and, and they all have a reason, So I feel like when you have the superstition of socks, like I used to have that for a moment. Oh, I need to put my lucky socks. And then one day I was like, well, if I'm preparing for the unexpected and I don't have my socks because whatever reason, then what am I going to do? I cannot let myself lose this event because I don't have my socks. Like that has no weight over me. It cannot control my destiny. I cannot believe that there's an outside power magic that is going to affect me. And then, I, again, I started going down on, like, why are we this way? If you watch me compete, you'll see that I rub my hands. I go like this. And that's because I want to have warm hands. I'm about to bar spin a lot. And, you know, climates all around the world are different. So uh, I had a bad experience with that. Like, oh, I'm about to rise, cold. And then I went to throw the bars, and my hands didn't open up quick. And boom, crash. And then you will see me uh, kind of doing like a squat And that's just to get my legs ready, kind of cueing them like I need you guys to be active. You know, you might see me spinning my torso and it's kind of the same. Like I'm cueing my brain like, hey, we're about to go into the most stressful part of the day. I need you to be as aware as you possibly can. And that puts you in a state of mind where you are focused. At the end of the day, all you require is focus. The superstition part is not so much like, oh, I cannot do this without my lucky charm in my pocket." Cool, if you want to have it, perfect. But it has a reason. And usually it's about comforting yourself. You're constantly talking to the subconscious mind. When I go to an event, I study the competitors, the course, and my riding. And it, to me, the most important aspect is riding. I do gym, I do a bit of yoga, I do all these other things. But if I'm not on my bike, I'm not able to compete. So by the time I go to the event, I, you know, sometimes I'm insecure. And then I, I'm like, Daniel, come on, trust your training. You've been doing this every day for weeks, months, years. Let's go. Uh, hands, <laughs> legs, torso. All right, let's do this. Visualize my run. First trick. This, second, third, fourth, fifth. Yada, yada. Okay, finish your run. Raise your hand. Wave to the crowd and smile. And okay, go and wait for your score. And it's crazy because that's what it is. it is. That's the method to... Make this happen. So, again, it has to do with preparation. That's, I think, at the end of the day, the the ultimate secret. One thing I've learned is that doing one hour for 10 days is more valuable than doing 10 hours in one day. Just the way the brain works and the way it learns, you do need to do a little bit every day, just like learning a language. Time goes on. I noticed in my writing, there were years that. I wanted to be more comfortable, so I didn't risk as much, and I probably didn't do so well in the competition. Uh, And there were years that, okay, I got smart about it, did the math, okay, these are the things, I'm back in business, I'm sending everything. Again, preparation, it takes time. It's not something that you're going to start reading it today and you're going to feel better, but you got to study it, you got to implement it, practice it, whatever it is. I am a person that I always say I can't have an excuse, and the way I train is the way I compete. So I'm training and I have the music that I like and I'm having my session. But like, for example, I was writing before I came here and my friend just put the worst possible music on earth. Seriously, like out of all of the music, I'd rather you put salsa. He's like, oh, change. It's like, no, 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 it's okay. I, I need to write in this uncomfortable music because I will go to the contest and they're not going to put the song that I like. Most likely not. And it's happened. It's happened many times that I I am about to drop in and they put the most horrific music this earth has ever heard. And I'm like, it's not going to distract me. It's not going to affect me. And it's the preparation of doing it over and over and over. So, you know, I I try to practice. I want to be comfortable when I practice, but I don't mind if there are things that are just being thrown off because it is impossible that you will have every event exactly how you want it. It's not going to happen like in Montpellier just now, World Cup, and helping train the BMX Chinese team. And there was a moment where they all freaked out. And I'm there, like, I have no emotions. I'm like the Terminator. I I think someone did a trick that they weren't expecting or something. And I lived this already many times where, like, I'll be at an event. I'm like, oh, I'm going to win this. And then someone comes and pulls a rabbit out of a hat and they just caught you with your pants down you have no way to battle this and you know it can throw you off so they all freaked out and I tell them like I don't care what the other writers do and I need you guys to also not care what the other writers do like keep it in your mind clap because if it was good yeah I think you should show respect but you can't freak out like you just lost the event because then you lost the event the event is not over until it's over you know there's many factors But freaking out is not the answer to when something wrong happens. I was a very aggressive, progressive rider right when I first got to the scene. So I kept throwing new tricks and different things, and I could see how the competitors didn't know how to react. There was a moment that I, I felt like I was very powerful, like I had all my tricks dialed, everything, and I knew I was competing against Scotty Kramer, who at that point in time, he was the guy to beat, and to me, at that time, he was the absolute best in the world. There was no possibility that a rider could be better than him. Uh, but competing-wise, I I kept beating him. And I remember I go to an event, and Mira's doing 1080s. I'm, I started doing 720 tail whips, 720 bar spins, and Scotty just did fronty tail whip. So at that point, to give you context, the 1080, the 7 whip, and the 7 bar were like the main tricks, but they already been done. And Scotty just did the first front flip tail whip, which was the first time anybody's ever done it. And he released this like a week before. A front flip tail whip is when you spin forward and then you spin the frame around at the same time. So he threw this on a video or something like the week before this event. So you knew that Scotty had this trick and your nightmares are coming to life because Scotty was just such an unpredictable rider the contest is coming up and it's such a short period of time to prepare a new trick. And in practice, I think I did, I did a 720 tail whip. A 720 tail whip is when you spin two times and you spin the frame once. It's a bit intricate. Like you got to be in the perfect axis. Otherwise you loop out or you crash. And this exactly what I'm telling you happened. I I spun, I miss and I I think I over-rotated or something. So my bars turn, and I just slam against the floor really hard, like handlebars to the gut. And then I go to finals, and I, yeah, I, I had no way to put this run together. Like, I I thought I was able to, but I just kept making mistakes. I was so concerned of what Scotty was going to do, and all these other guys that I just kept making mistakes. And at the end, I ended up in fourth, which it wasn't terrible, but to me, it was the end of the world. It was like, how did I not win this event or get top three? This is an insult to myself. I can't let this happen again. When I look back, it's like, well, there were a couple of things happening. You were caught off guard. Also Salt Lake City altitude. I never accounted that I would be tired. Like my brain wasn't going to be functioning the same way. You know, I created a plan for the next event. I learned to strategize like, okay, what events are the ones that You know, you are going all the chips in and what events? Hey, you know what? It's okay. I don't have to win this one. This case is kind of crazy because I can show up to the Olympic Games in Paris and they could have the most uncomfortable park this earth has ever seen. But I know my mentality then is like, I do not care what this is going to look like because it's the one event, it's the one event that really matters. This is the one thing I need to focus on. I need to put all of my chips on the table. This is the one. All the other ones, although they are important, you know, the World Cups and World Championships, the strategy is different. And I learned that from all these mistakes that I made in the past and, you know, absorbing the information. Every little bit counts towards that experience. When I went to the Olympic Games, I told my friend, I'm like, hey, man, if for some reason I pass away, you will put me in the casket and you will attach this casket to the bike and you will throw me from the ramp. But I'm doing my run. I don't care in what state. And that was such a crazy mindset that I hadn't had in years, that I was there ready to die. But I was like, I'm not going to die. I'm going to do the best run I possibly can do because I want to win this gold medal. I got close. I ended up in silver. But it was such an insane mindset that, I, I you know, uh, to me, it had been some times since I haven't felt that way. Usually I might feel like that the day off, but this was already something that I had in my mind for a long time. I think I was just so prepared for the Olympics that the banana peels were reduced to an absolute minimum. There was one instance that it was weird and it was emotional. And it was when the Olympic Games start, uh, the Venezuelan delegation was doing really bad, like with no medals, no nothing, losing every qualifier. And people on the internet start criticizing, like, oh, the, the Venezuelan delegation is just going to going there for vacations. At this point, I don't care, and if they want to crucify me, okay, so be it. But this is not right. My plan was surgically crafted. I could not be changing things because the country was happy or sad. I get to the Olympic Games, and day one, the park doesn't work. This is one of the worst parks we ever rode in history. And I'm like, dude, my line is... It's disintegrated. I can't do my line. So, yeah, I guess I had another banana peel. It was right off the gate. And, you know, as I was doing these tricks, like, to kind of set the pace, I was also kind of freaking out. I was like, dude, I had this line in my head, and now I I can't do it. And then I was like, and I had this trick that I wanted to do that I know is going to be sick, and now I can't do it either. Damn. And I remember, okay, what am I going to do? Like, this is calamity. And I was like, all right, number one, don't panic. Go tomorrow to practice. Focus on the one part that is giving you trouble, and see if you can if you can dig through it. Let us see. Uh, you do have a bit of more practice than usual, and that's what I did. Day two, I just focused on the one part that I really wanted to like get dialed, and then by the third day, I was like, I, I remember telling my friend, I was like, the line is back. I was so excited. I was able to do the run that I've been planning. Uh, you know, using what I've learned this last 15, 16, 17 years, you know? So it's crazy. I always tell people, like, I I basically summarize 15 years into one minute because I did tricks from, you know, the first trick that got me into the sport, like, that's, that's Daniel Dares. That's the kid that did the front flip of the spine. All the way to tricks that, you know, my mentors did, tricks that I invented, links that were complicated, you know, like... It, Again, it, it was very a very important moment for me because also I was 36 years old. I was meant to retire the year before, and I stayed because I'm like, dude, the Olympic Games, man, I think I can make it in. I don't, and I think I can medal too, dude. Like, it's got to be hard, but I know I can do it. And, you know, so to me it was like, yes, it is possible. You just need to have a lot of focused attention in what you need to do, prepare the plan, what's the strategy. And adjust as you go. And even though I did not win, and you might say, well, it wasn't that infallible after all. You know, we both wrote our best. And at the end of the day, that's why, like, to me, it was not an issue. Everything in my life led me for that moment. Now I have another 20-year plan. When I go to Venezuela, like, people will recognize me before, but very mild. And, hey, uh, photo, man, yeah, I saw your seems. Cool. Thank you. Pan American Games kind of put me a bit more in the media. And after the games, and after especially that moment and everything, like, I remember I talked to my friend. He went back to Venezuela before I did, and he was like, hey, man, things are a bit crazy. They recognized me on the street, and I wasn't competing, so embrace yourself because it's going to be nuts. I'm like, nah, it's okay. No, dude, it's it's different this time. All right. And it was different. It was like Drake showed up at the shopping mall. It felt insane. Something I learned is how do you handle crowds, right? And, and the people that come to talk to you, especially a fan, if they are like taking their time to come and recognize you, pay respects and, you know, shake your hand, it's like the least you can do is do the same thing. I think luckily I also had good role models. It was hectic, but what do you do? Okay, how how do I prepare for this? Once I left and came back, you know, the, the crowds are a lot more chill now. I wish they would teach us all of this. And I tell that to all of the guys heading to the Olympics now. It's like, hey, man, it's not just the Olympics and you go win the medal and it's beautiful. Like, there's such a crazy responsibility after because, you know, maybe you don't hit. Maybe you're on the quiet side and it's okay. Your life still stays very similar. But if it doesn't, it, it's not one of those things that you can, like, prepare with time. You're kind of preparing as you're running. I am happy with a lot of the things that that I've done. And, you know, like, I feel like going to the Olympics was closing a chapter in my life. And it's weird because I am working towards the next Olympics. Like, I want to retire in Paris 2024. And I know it's a tough qualification. Like, I I see the level of riding has changed. And the format has changed. And, you know, and I am adapting. It's a bit harder now. I have a lot of distractions. And I have different goals as well for my life. Like, um, you know, like I said, I do kind of have a 20 year plan now for the next 20 years like I didn't know what I was doing 20 years before the Olympics and look at what happened so imagine now that I know how to prepare what I could achieve in the next 20 years so I am very happy and I know my place in my country now I know my place in my country here in the US as well I know my place within the sport outside of the sport what I like what I don't like Um, you know it's like it's a nice moment to reorganize things. And I know that, you know, next year my plan is to move back to Venezuela after 22 years. It's Time to go back. I, I, I am a better resource there than I am here. Like here in America, you know, I can and stay and do the American dream and uh, make money and, and all this stuff, which is obviously nice. But I, I think I can do more for my country. My country wants to get up finally wants to stop arguing. Now it's like, dude, what do we do? How do we do this? I will be spending my time more on guiding those who don't know what they're doing. For example, I just started coaching the Chinese team. And it's a very young team. They started riding just two, three years ago. They have a chance on the women's side. The, the men, they don't have a chance yet. And that was a tough conversation to have with them not long ago. You can see like their reaction was like, <gasps> and it's like, But that is okay, because that will give you time to prepare and actually qualify and be ready for L.A. 2028. And once we're closer, we will do what we need to do for for you guys to win that. I learned to teach. I learned to explain things. I learned to motivate people. I learned uh, all these things that I didn't know I was capable of. Venezuela is not there yet. I started an academy to teach athletes on how to speak to camera how to uh, generate resources, how to manage your own brand, how to invest for the future. We have lessons for the coaches and the parents. And this started with me going to the French embassy, asking for French classes, like, hey, could you give us French lessons for free? And the French ambassador was like, show me the, pr- the what you're trying to do. And I showed him the whole thing. He's like, we'll fund it. So... Little kid from Venezuela riding a random bike in the middle of the street in a country that was crazy conflicted. And I was speaking to an ambassador of a country. You know, it's a very emotional moment because moms, you know, our moms. And, and it was, you know, crazy for me too because I don't get to see her often, right? And it was nuts. Exactly that moment is what taught me, okay, imagine if I didn't know what I was doing, got me here. Imagine now that I know what I'm doing, where will it get me? I don't have like an, an end goal. But I know that I can prepare and do things and, you know, uh, feel the flow as I
0: go. Well, Daniel could not have been clearer about the role that BM mixing has played in shaping him as a person, from the responsibility of being a role model to building consistency and discipline in his routine. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the next 20 years pan out for him. That's all for this time. But if you're craving more mindset win, you can find plenty of episodes wherever you get your podcasts. À la prochaine. Salut.